Welcome to the HR Room Podcast, the podcast series from Insight HR, where we talk to business leaders from around Ireland and share their advice on how to create the HR systems and workplace culture that's right for your business. For show notes and bonus content, simply visit www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. And remember, if you need any HR support, get in touch with us at Insight HR. Whether it's conducting a complex workplace investigation, filling a gap by providing you with a virtual or on-site HR resource, or providing advice via our HR support line, we'll help you resolve whatever human resources challenge your business is facing. Okay, let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of the HR Room Podcast. Exactly one year ago, in October 2021, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre published a research paper aimed at finding solutions to workplace sexual harassment in Ireland. The survey of 940 individuals showed that 75.7% of respondents said they had experienced sexual harassment. One of the most stark findings in the research revealed that out of those who had reported experiencing sexual harassment, 60% of them said they had been sexually harassed at work. So joining us to talk about this serious and important topic today, we're delighted to be joined by someone who works alongside the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre on this piece of research and is an employment law expert in this, this area. We're joined by Mola Brady-Bates. How are you, Mola? Thanks for joining us. I'm great. Thank you very much for having me, Owen. Brilliant. As always, we're joined by our very own Mary Cullen, founder and managing director here at Inside HR. How are you, Mary? I'm great. Thanks, Owen. And really looking forward to discussing this topic today, um, an area I'm passionate about myself. Yeah, 100%. So it should be, a, it should be an interesting one and an important one. So, Mola, just to kind of kick us off, I suppose, can you define sexual harassment in the workplace first? It's obviously different to harassment. There's a, there's a couple of key things within the definition that kind of stand out, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely, Owen. So I suppose one of the key pieces of legislation underpinning uh, harassment and sexual harassment are the Employment Equality Acts. And uh, so the Employment Equality Acts, or we often call them the EEA uh, in the legal profession, they define harassment as unwanted conduct, which is related to any of the nine discriminatory grounds. So you've got things like um, gender or your family status or your religious status being protected grounds there. And, but the key thing with sexual harassment is that it's any form of unwanted verbal or non-verbal or physical contact, but of a sexual nature. So in both cases, harassment and sexual harassment is defined as conduct which has the purpose or effect of violating a person's dignity and creating an intimidating, hostile, degrading, humiliating or offensive environment for the person. But as I mentioned, sexual harassment can include Many behaviours such as physical conduct of a sexual nature, including unnecessary touching, brushing against another employee's body, assault and coercive sexual intercourse, verbal conduct, as I mentioned, so a verbal conduct of a sexual nature, including propositions or pressure for sexual contact, continued suggestions for social contact outside the workplace after it has been made clear that such suggestions are unwelcome, suggestive remarks, innuendo or lewd comments, and then written conduct of a sexual nature could include things such as emails, text messages or social media posts. And of course, there can also be other conduct of a sexual nature, for example, whistling, leering, jeering, um, and display of sexually suggestive pictures. And also included in, in this, uh, the, the definition of, of sexual harassment is also gender-based conduct. So things that are, you know, in derogatory or degrading insults, which are gender-based, for example, insulting an employee because they are pregnant or they are transgender or something like that. Brilliant. So it's important to set that context. So thanks, thanks for that, Molly. So I suppose getting into the, the realities of it here in Ireland, is it prevalent in Irish workplaces, Molly? Because I know you did obviously that great piece of work last year with the Dunray Crisis Centre and there has been a few surveys out there that have highlighted the problem here in Ireland, hasn't there? 
Yes, and sadly, Owen, it is more common than we probably realise or than employers may be aware of due to high levels of underreporting. So you mentioned that great piece of uh, research undertaken by the DRCC, and actually they undertook that survey in 2018 initially, and and then we did a bit of a piece of work on it uh, last October. But the reason underpinning the survey for the DRCC was to look at the impact of the Me Too movement and see really had much changed in Ireland in workplaces. And so as you mentioned the majority of survey respondents who responded to the survey said that they had experienced sexual harassment. So that was 75% of the respondents. And uh, I should say that 94% of everyone who responded to the survey was based in Ireland. So we are talking about Irish workforce here, um, people based in Ireland. And also the majority of those respondents who had experienced sexual harassment identified their place of employment as the primary location in which they experienced the harassment, as you mentioned at the outset. So that's very stark. And I think another important point to note and and kind of goes to your question is that the majority of respondents who experienced sexual harassment did not report the harassment because they cited the consequence of reporting as the primary reason for not reporting it. So I think while it's clear that the Me Too movement instigated a bit of a cultural awakening and great discussion around workplace sexual harassment and sexual harassment in general, the pervasive nature of sexual harassment and abuse is still evident in Ireland and abroad and particularly in the workplace and it's still a very damaging reality and I think we can look as you mentioned there have been a number of other surveys and we can look to the law society and to the, the survey they undertook as well which just shows a snapshot of of one other industry but the law society of Ireland undertook a survey to examine the extent of dignity matters issues in the legal industry in Ireland and The responses to the survey showed, again, unacceptable levels of bullying, harassment and sexual harassment and significant underreporting of incidents. So kind of echoes what we saw through the DRCC survey results as well. And so that Law Society survey found that amongst its members who responded to the survey, one in two women and one in eight men experienced sexual harassment. And that 91% of those who had experienced sexual harassment did not report their experiences of sexual harassment. So there's a a significant level of underreporting. And as I said, that's just a snapshot of one industry surveyed in recent times, but the responses are pretty damning and and pretty hard to swallow. And and as you said, last year, I looked at at this issue with the DRCC and we looked at some ways in which we might provide research-based reforms to, to best aid access to justice in Ireland in this area. And so any listeners who might be interested in kind of delving further into that can, can take a look at that paper. It's a discussion paper on the, the DRCC website. 100%. So it seems like kind of a, a double issue, not just the frequency of this taking place, but it's the underreporting piece as well. So it's it's, a it's a, both, exactly. It's a double issue. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Definitely. So Mary, I suppose, question from the HR kind of side of things. So is this something that, I suppose from your experience, Mary, from obviously being HR consultant for quite a while now, is this something that HR teams and businesses find especially kind of intimidating to deal with just because it's, it's so serious? Obviously, you have to deal with it, but it can be quite a scary thing to get into, Mary, isn't it? Absolutely. I think it, there's nothing like a, an allegation of sexual harassment in the workplace to terrify HR team as much as, you know, the senior team or, or the executive suite, um, simply because, you know, if somebody is bringing it to the attention of the organisation, then a response is required um, and it can be very difficult to mediate um, in those circumstances or to uh, look at alternative informal ways of resolving 
those kind of complaints. And usually an organisation is is moving pretty quickly into a workplace investigation when it comes to those kind of allegations or they're, they're trying to squash it. They're trying to get rid of it and make it go away uh, in some way, which which can result at times in, you know, a termination agreement with the person who's made the complaint. And so it, it can be an area that's quite stressful for HR when it comes up particularly if it involves management, an allegation from an employee against their line manager or an allegation against, you know, someone very senior in the organisation. And in those circumstances, HR don't know what to do necessarily. They know what they ought to do, but addressing the whole issue can become quite a challenge at the practical level. And that's mm-hmm. where I guess those kind of allegations get outsourced. Um, you know, while an internal team might manage a bullying allegation or a grievance or something like that, it's very rare that you'll see an internal team manage a, a sexual harassment allegation. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, it's, it's fraught. It's definitely fraught. 100%. And I suppose the, the, the underlying obvious strand to this is obviously the, the stress that the HR team feels is obviously less than 1% of the relevant parties, but it's just from a HR perspective, that's why we asked the question. So 100% it is something that could be, be quite difficult. I suppose, Mala, then for things that HR teams can do and kind of getting into that kind of side of things, is it important for organizations to have a specific policy for preventing sexual harassment in the workplace? Is that a, is that a requirement at this stage? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, a clear and effective policy is one of the keys to prevention. And as we discussed a few moments ago, there are kind of two strands that we're seeing in the survey responses to workplace sexual harassment. You know, one is the harassment taking place itself, but also there's the underreporting. So I suppose the purpose of a policy is not merely to prevent just unlawful behaviour, but also to encourage best practice and a safe and harmonious workplace where the behaviour is unlikely to occur in the first place. So in that respect, a sexual harassment policy would be more effective if it's linked to a broader equality policy. Um, And it's often common practice for employers to have an overarching dignity at work policy, which deals with equality, discrimination, harassment, sexual harassment and bullying. While it's not an obligation to have a policy in place, it is certainly best practice and would be strongly encouraged and something that would be looked upon you know very negatively if if a case was to go to court if a, if a policy wasn't in place by an organization however on top of that having a policy in place is, is not a, a policy is only as good as its as its implementation if if you like so just having a policy in place unless it's enforced and effective i suppose that that it'll only go so far it's it's not very beneficial uh, so it should be implemented in so far as, as possible with clients, customers and business contacts and also after consultation, if necessary, with the trade union or employee representatives. So really as much buy-in as possible to make sure a policy is effective is, is, a, is a really uh, good idea and a way of creating a much safer environment and one where people will feel much better about knowing what avenues they can uh, go down and, and how they can report incidents if, unfortunately, if they occur. And so the policy should also be communicated to all employees and all levels of management. 100%. And it's, it's one of those ones we say about, I suppose, every policy we speak about on this, on this podcast, Mary, if it's buried in page 28, section C, it's not going to be, it's, that's, that's no excuse, I suppose. So Mary, just from the employer side of things then, so when it comes to dealing with a claim of sexual harassment in the workplace, Mary, what are the key kind of processes, policy things that a HR professional must look out for in the first instance? 
Yeah, and I, I would echo um, what Malia says around um, the training and bringing to life those policies. And like you say, own, you know, sending out the policy or bringing people into a dry training session, which just reads through the policy, is rarely effective. So bringing to life and getting to understand um, people's views when it comes to what's okay and what's not okay in the workplace is really important because, you know, of all the uh, sexual harassment investigations that I have done, when I'm speaking to the person who's accused and trying to establish fact in relation to the allegations against the person, usually the person is telling me I didn't intend to do this and it was just a joke or it was just a throwaway comment or I like the person and I asked them out three times, is that too much? Or whatever the circumstances are. And that's not me in any way justifying bad behavior in the workplace. It's me saying that everybody doesn't have the same understanding of what's okay and what's not okay in the workplace. And it's really important that you're building in your uh, training at induction, that there's uh, refresher training, that there's regular training done throughout the organisation around dignity at work in general and sexual harassment in particular. Um, and I think that's a really important point and, and it cannot be downplayed in any shape or form. But bringing it to life is important so that people really understand it. So that's one piece of it. And then when it comes, I guess, to the complaint and the complaint handling, again, that's not to be negative, but that's often where things start to fall down because somebody makes an allegation and they speak to their manager, the manager not necessarily knowing what to do or how to do it and maybe making mistakes at that point in time, particularly if the person who's accused is somebody that they know and like and respect themselves. Again, I think there needs to be quite a bit of training for managers on dealing with complaints, what they should be doing, what they should be saying, what they, what signposting should be in place. Then you've got the role of contact support people the people specifically trained in the organization and known to individuals, the employees within the organization who are trained around sexual harassment and again are there for information uh, and, and to signpost people towards the appropriate policy and the appropriate avenues to have complaints addressed. And then we've got to the point of, okay, somebody isn't interested in informal resolution or doesn't feel that informal resolution can resolve the complaint. And often in sexual harassment cases, that is the case, that somebody who feels that they have been sexually harassed might have very strong emotional reaction to any possibility of, of sitting in a room and trying to work something out with an individual. Uh, often they're not willing to do that. And understandably, depending on what has happened in many cases. So often in sexual harassment cases, it, it does come to investigation. And when it comes to investigation, you know, appointing somebody neutral is really important, whether that's internal or external. Appointing somebody who has no bias 
in that regard. So they're not closely aligned to the managing director, they're not closely aligned to the manager, that they are genuinely independent and neutral when it comes to carrying out an investigation. That's key. And then to expect that everybody who's involved is going to be distressed. So the person who's making the allegation is going to be distressed. The person against whom the allegation is made is going to be distressed. And it takes great skill and care to handle those kind of investigations, bearing in mind that people's mental health and well-being, you know, can deteriorate during these processes as well. And then getting to a conclusion quickly you know, getting through an investigation quickly is key. And then you got the investigation done and, and, and what happens then? Is there uh, grounds for a disciplinary process or training or retraining or uh, something like that? Is there opportunity to mediate between the parties? Uh, are you going to be involved in sanctioning an individual or maybe dismissing an individual? So it's quite Quite fraught, as you can imagine, there's a number of steps, a number of things that you might have to consider if you're in HR when these complaints come to light. And as Malia says, these, these complaints aren't regularly reported. And when they are, they must be taken absolutely seriously and acted upon appropriately so that, you know, the person who's brought forward the complaint is not treated badly by the organization for having done so. Mm-hmm. And it's that fine balance, I suppose, between the, I suppose when we talk about the soft skills kind of side of things, it's that balance between empathy and and awareness and kindness and that kind of stuff, but also staying impartial as well, Mary, isn't it? So it, is a, it can be a tricky topic, right? So Maul, any, can, anything to add from your perspective on that kind of policies, things to look out for kind of piece? Yeah, no, I just completely echo, I think, everything that Mary said there. And I suppose the the aspect of it being frequently underreported as well as that, you know, it might be the first time a HR professional is dealing with it because it's not something we see that frequently coming up because of the underreporting issue. And so people, you know, I suppose managers need to be just very aware of just supporting HR professionals through that, I think, and also just ensuring that there's training there no matter what. You know, it's not a, a situation even if you think, well, we've never had instances of workplace sexual harassment before. You know, it's not something we've had to deal with it. We'll deal with it when it comes up. I think it's just from the outset being really aware, building it into your culture, building it into your your principles and your values. As uh, Mary says, from the moment someone comes on, you know, is onboarded, that it's there in the kind of fibre of the organisation. I think that can really help those processes as well. 100%. So I suppose the big question to finish, and we always kind of finish on it, I suppose, and I'll come to both of you for this one, but I'll come to yourself, Mary, first. Any kind of general advice then for HR teams who either want to prevent this from happening or need support if it does happen in the workplace? I know it's kind of a segue from our previous question, Mary, but any kind of additional advice in that regard? Read the code of practice. I think it's a good starting point so that you fully understand what the best practice advice is. And that's important. Training your organization and and you know developing awareness campaigns is really important but what often it does not happen is training the management team so training people on handling the complaint so often during the workplace investigations that's probably the biggest criticism i see whether whether it's any dignity at work 
complaint, but specifically when it comes to sexual harassment, it's it's how someone feels they were treated at that point by the organisation. So your managers absolutely must know what to do, how to deal with it and to ensure that they don't, you know, jump to somebody's defence before the person has had an opportunity to set out what they believe has happened to them. So it, it's training, training, training all the way. Mm-hmm. Get your policies and procedures in place too. And would you believe, I mean, the, I think the, the code of practice has been there for a while now, um, and yet policies and procedures are still not updated at an organisation level. So many um, people I come across haven't got round to it from the HR perspective and why there's a million and one things to be done. Are they getting to it? Absolutely. Are they going to outsource it yet sometime soon? Um, but it still remains probably an area where the whole dignity at work policy which should be reviewed given the changes with um, the code of practice on bullying uh, and the code of practice on sexual harassment and and yet they're still outstanding so it's a a bit of a pity to see that too. 100% it's one of those ones you don't realise how much you need that awareness and training and all that kind of piece until until it happens. I suppose over to yourself Molly any kind of additional advice on that kind of prevention piece just for HR teams, business leaders, that kind of thing? Yeah, thanks, Owen. And just to echo what Mary said there about the code of practice, I mean, I, I really think it should be the first protocol for employers because it is so, it's so practical. Uh, you know, it's really focused on giving practical guidance. So it's not like you're delving into a really turgid piece of legislation. It's something that, you know, you can sit down with and really take away some really um, good practical best practice tips, I suppose. I mean, at a very basic level, Employers can take certain practical steps to combat workplace uh, sex harassment and its unreporting, such as, you know, focusing on prevention by creating a positive workplace environment. We discussed the importance of culture there. So, if, you know, if you can create a, a workplace environment that's free from bullying, intimidation, harassment, sexual harassment and ongoing negative behaviour, that kind of culture will really help people to feel supported and also to report incidents that are, that are not aligned with the, the clear culture of the workplace. And as we mentioned, the code on harassment and sexual harassment identifies the role of the organisational culture as a key player in prevention. Good leadership proper communication and staff training, 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 as Mary said, and the resolution of complaints in a prompt, supportive, effective and fair manner are all aspects of a positive organisational culture. Also then ensuring there's effective dignity at work policy in place and not just, you know, leaving it up on the shelf and, and not looking at it, making sure that it's updated and reflects the best practice in the in the new codes. That's very, very important. But as I mentioned earlier, having a policy is one thing, but a policy is only as good as its implementation. So really raising awareness around dignity at work matters and doing this through, you know, focused, specific and regular training. We keep banging on about training, but it really is is one of the keys to this. And then in addition to training, you know, holding staff surveys to understand where there are knowledge gaps there and where issues are arising. So you can really kind of get a snapshot of what's going on in the organisation. And then I suppose finally, you know, promptly and effectively dealing with complaints and ensuring that there are additional supports there for people going through a complaint process, be it the employee assistance program, uh, thinking about what what, what additional supports could be put in place um, and making sure to act swiftly and effectively to, to bring a better resolution so it's not lingering out there. They're all a few key key aspects. 100%. You know one thing that, and I've said it before on this podcast and, and probably on some of our webinars as well, I notice when it comes to 
uh, matters like sexual harassment, even on LinkedIn, you know, I see HR people sharing and liking all sorts of articles and and stories and photos and all of those kind of things and virtually every other workplace topic. But when it comes to sexual harassment, it's like that taboo subject mm-hmm. is there and people don't want to be associated with it. And I think that in in some ways is damaging as well that, you know, we don't talk openly about the possibility. And yet look at the kind of terrifying statistics um, that you highlighted as we started, Maya, in relation to this whole area. What I think would be really dreadful to see is that people are experiencing sexual harassment in our workplaces and nobody's talking about it and the conversation isn't happening enough at an organisational level. And organisations like the Dublin Dublin Rape Crisis Centre are highlighting uh, these kind of issues along with professionals like Malia uh, who contributed to that important piece of work. You know, we're just see we're still not seeing enough uh, around this whole area in general in in the workplace. It is a bit of a taboo topic. Hundred percent, and as as scary as it is for the the relevant party to bring it up, at least if there's supports there, training there, and the the house is in order for them to get through the process effectively and supported, then that's that's half the battle. And hopefully, that's that's what people have learned from today. So thank you. Walia and Mary for a very insightful discussion. Again, an important one to to discuss. It's something that isn't to be shied away from. So thank you for the advice and the insights on that. Really appreciate it. Thank you to everyone for listening. We'll catch you next week for the next installment of our podcast. So don't forget to click subscribe and join the discussion on our social media channels. Do keep an eye out for a link to our webinar series on this exact topic coming in the in the next week or so for some additional information on this topic. So make sure to register for that. And as always, for HR consultancy services and management you can trust, get in touch with us today at insighthr.ie. Thank you, Molly, and thank you, Mary. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Molly. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Mary. That's great. Thanks for joining us today on the HR Room podcast, the podcast series from Insight HR that helps you create the human resources systems and workplace culture that's right for your business. For show notes and bonus content, go to www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. That's www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. We'd love it if you subscribe, like and share the show with any friends and colleagues who are looking for fresh ideas on how to create the ideal workplace for their business. And remember, if you need any HR support, get in touch with us at Insight HR. Whether it's conducting a complex workplace investigation, filling a gap by providing you with a virtual or an on-site HR resource, or providing advice via our HR support line, we'll help you resolve whatever human resources challenge your business is facing. Thanks, and see you soon.